You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. You see it on the news. You see it on the paper. You see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. If you believe her, you're just buying her bill of goods. She's really brilliant that she was able to be so convincing that everybody believed her at the time. I just think she's a snake. And I think she's a genius. I'm sure you have come across people in your life that you are astounded by how clever they are. And I think that she was one of those. And then sinister. So many people assume that the woman is in fact a victim when in fact she was not. She had an agenda. That is my heartfelt belief and impression. Welcome to The First Degree, the true kind podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm here with Alexis Linkletter, and I just got a spray tan, and my face has not looked any more orange as it does right now. Am I shocking you right now? You don't even look orange to me at all. Oh, really? No. Oh. You just have a glisten. I do have a little bit of a glisten. Thank you. I'm feeling really good. Um, How are you doing? I'm doing great. Do we want to tell the listeners uh, to join our Patreon if they haven't already? I think you all should join our Patreon. We're doing some exciting stuff. We're pivoting to video soon. And we have a pretty spooky studio we are setting (laughs) up. And it's being painted at the moment. We're making it a little goth castle kingdom. So we're excited to show everyone. Yes, we're painting our walls black at the moment. And getting crows and stuff or whatever decor you want. Yeah, like a crow lamp. (laughs) She's <laughs> letting me go a little crazy. She's like, all right, whatever, whatever you want. Just what happened to this moon lamp that you're supposed to get? Oh, it's coming. Okay. I just, I haven't seen it and it's been a while since you talked about it. So I don't know. Don't worry. It'll be there. Okay. So I think it's time for the day. What day is it? So today is, there's like, uh, it's actually pretty fucking sad. It's National Pumpkin Day, which is nice. Is it? I mean, as we slide into the holiday where pumpkins are sacrificed left and right for the <laughs> entertainment of children, we get them and display their corpses. I know. Well, you know, I also, I did a jack-o'-lantern uh, recently and it died within like two and a half days. So the pumpkins really don't last once you cut into them. They just go downhill very fast. Yeah. And also it's horseless carriage day. Oh, which I guess is nice because, you know, you don't want to ride the horse-drawn carriages. No, it exhausts the horses. Horse less. I don't know how that works. So that's probably just like a machine. Electric drawn carriage 
or gas powered like a golf cart yeah i haven't seen one of those okay so uh that's enough of that because the days suck today so let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety because this could be you Like the diamond in the wedding ring, marriage is multifaceted. It has many faces. On one side, a marriage, it can be lovely. Two people coming to love and honor each other for as long as they both shall live, making a sacred vow to put in the work necessary to maintain a strong union, no matter the trials and tribulations life throws at them. A promise that, time after time, two partners will join forces to overcome any challenge. What is more human and what is more beautiful than that? But the inner workings of someone's marriage are a mystery to others. Only those two people know exactly what happens behind closed doors, what's said during fights, what's threatened, and who is the first to storm out of a room. Who is the first to pull their hand back? The perception of a marriage can be Dr. Jekyll, while the reality is Mr. Hyde. And when marriages sometimes burn all the way to the ground, and all that's left is ashes, we're sometimes left wondering, which spouse is at fault? Who exactly is the monster? So today's case takes place on October 9th of the year 2000. And in the U.S., George W. Bush and Al Gore were duking it out for November's presidential election. We all remember that one. And as we know, Bush would win the presidency by a historically slim margin. In the box office, Billy Elliot was leading the movies, followed by Cyberworld and then Requiem for a Dream, which is an amazing movie. Spooky. So good. Madonna's song Music dominated the charts, spending four weeks and number one. And other hits of the time were 98 Degrees, Give Me Just One Night, and Janet Jackson's It Doesn't Really Matter. It was a good time for music. Doesn't Really Matter is one of my favorite all-time songs. It's so good. So good. So the 90s iconic dot-com bubble officially popped only a few months earlier in March of the year 2000. But of course, the tech market would recover in the years to come as the world became increasingly more reliant on the web. And now we can't get off of it. Nope. And the first setting for today's case is Kailua, Hawaii, which is on the eastern side of Oahu. It's a 20-minute drive from the Hawaiian state capital of Honolulu. Researchers believe Native Hawaiians lived in the area for at least 1,500 years. Today, about 40,000 people live there, and it's primarily a residential area. The city's windy beaches make Kailua the ideal surfing destination. Big winds mean big waves. Although Hawaii is fueled by tourism, Kailua isn't as popular of a vacation spot as big-name destinations like Honolulu or Waikiki. However, Kailua gained attention when President Barack Obama's family repeatedly vacationed there in the late 2000s. It almost goes without saying, Kailua is gorgeous. It's exactly what you imagine when you picture Hawaii. Endless turquoise water, swaying palm trees, and silky white sand, a literal paradise. But now, let's pivot to our story today and how it came to us. Our first degree for today's case is named Allison, and Allison lives in Los Angeles, but she has a second home in Kailua. So Kailua is on Oahu, on the other side of the hills from Honolulu. It's stunning. We love it so much. It's really unbelievable. It's such a gorgeous, tropical heaven. 
a beautiful beach town. It's one of the most beautiful beaches in the world. But there's a military base right next door. Like the next adjoining town is a military base. So there's some military. And then there are a lot of local families that are multi-generational. A lot of people live in Kailua and work in town. It's a bedroom community to Honolulu, really. It's a little jungly. If you hike there, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. You know, good restaurants and lots of tourists. Of course, Allison and her family spent a fair amount of time at their Hawaii home. I mean, who wouldn't? It's Hawaii. It's gorgeous. And in 1999, she regularly went to a YMCA in Kailua. And as a mother of three sons, Allison took advantage of the wise daycare. And our mom listeners definitely understand this value of a little bit of me time, especially when it comes to working out. And Allison started to get kind of chummy with the other women at the gym who were doing the same thing that she was. And in taking this class, she started to notice something. The women in the class seemed extremely close friends, all of them. It was especially noticeable once they all corralled in their locker room after class was over. I belonged to the YMCA because I had three sons at that point, three little bitty kids. And you could go to the Y and work out for two hours. And you had a two-hour block, so you could work out and then shower by yourself. I was usually there when the class was finishing. So we were all showering together, you know, two or three times a week. So Allison was immersed with these women regularly. Like she said, two or three times a week, they all showed up like clockwork. This wasn't your regular group fitness class where people get in and get out. These women had developed a unique bond. So when the swim class was over, they would head to the locker room and share juicy gossip and have little birthday parties for one another and talk about their lives. And it was there that she met a woman named Lisa Northen, who Allison also recognized from yoga classes she'd taken at the Y before. I would see her two or three times a week in the locker room. She was very tight with this pre- and postpartum swim class group of women. And I would see her in the locker room and at yoga. And this this group of these swim, these swim girls, the swim class, were really close. Like they'd have birthday parties in the locker room. They were, you know, young moms. And somebody got a boob job and they lifted up their shirt to show everybody the boob job. And they were a really tight-knit group of women. And I was just kind of on the outer parts of it because I didn't do that swim class, but I saw them all all the time. Lisa, who had recently had her first son, was a really memorable woman. In her late 30s, Lisa was a triple crown bodyboard surfer, a successful sports photographer, and had once been a Baywatch stunt woman. It's freaking insane. And Lisa's life was thrilling and she had this natural charisma to her. And not to mention, she was extremely beautiful. So it's no wonder that people were drawn to Lisa. And this is how Allison remembers her. She looked like a girl that spent a whole bunch of time at the beach. She just seemed kind of ditzy, just kind of a flaky, like, beach girl. She had a beautiful body. She was just a healthy, strong, lean, young mother. She was a surf photographer, made her kind of more attractive because that's very interesting. And she was a little bit famous. But Lisa hadn't always been a famous surfing photographer. In fact, she came from fairly humble beginnings. On March 10th of 1962, Lisa was born in Silver City, New Mexico, to her parents, Sharon and Wyland DeWitt. She had a brother who was one year younger than her. Then Lisa's family moved to Missouri, but when she was five years old, they settled in the small countryside town of Walla Walla, Washington. So Walla Walla is home to about 30,000 people and is best known for its wine, hot air balloon festivals, and scenic running trails. And growing up was difficult for Lisa, both physically and mentally. She suffered from bone-breaking epileptic seizures, especially in her elementary school years. And her mother was viciously abusive. 
She threatened Lisa with knives and she threw vases at her. And Lisa's father, who Lisa loved dearly, traveled for work, so he wasn't there to stop it. Later, Lisa's parents would divorce over her mother's child abuse. But Lisa overcame her tough childhood and was fiercely independent as a young woman. She always found ways to stand out from the crowd. So, for example, Lisa's name was originally spelled the traditional way, L-I-S-A. But in high school, she changed it to L-I-Y-S-A, just because she liked it better that way. By her teen years, Lisa was a prolific athlete. She did gymnastics. She did skiing, tennis, and cheerleading. Sounds like Jacqueline Vanek over here. (laughs) And Lisa loved to write, especially in her journal. And over the course of her life, she would accumulate boxes and boxes of completely filled journals. After Lisa graduated from Walla Walla High School in 1979, she went to Oregon State University, but she didn't finish her degree there. Instead, she married a handsome, quiet musician. She was only 19 years old at the time, and he was 20. And together, they moved to Ithaca, New York, so he could study at Cornell University. But Lisa wasn't a fan of the East Coast. So in 1983, they moved to Hawaii, and Lisa knew that she had found her home. She immediately fell in love with the ocean and was surfing, and she finished up her bachelor's degree at the University of Hawaii in 1985. She'd majored in creative writing with a minor in marine studies. And around this time, she became a trained research scuba diver for the Hawaii government. And also around this time, Lisa's marriage to the musician started falling apart. Yeah, so Lisa and her first husband did not end well. So he described her as, direct quote, very manipulative, saying that she lied frequently and that she had low self-esteem and had cheated on him. But Lisa maintained that he was actually the unfaithful one. In fact, Lisa said that he was exploring his sexuality and had a relationship with a man during their marriage. Although they broke up in 1985, Lisa and her husband were legally married for two more years. And Lisa didn't look back fondly on her first marriage and would pretend that it didn't happen when she met new guys. Lisa's next serious boyfriend was under the impression that she'd only been married for a day before she realized she'd made a horrible mistake and had immediately annulled the marriage and gotten divorced. But this was a lie. Truthfully, Lisa had been married to her first husband for six years. And that same boyfriend believed Lisa was prone to exaggerations and even lying for the sake of getting what she wanted. Like one time, Lisa and he were driving to an airport in Hawaii, and without warning, Lisa began sobbing and clutching her bag frantically. When the boyfriend tried to talk to her, she was just completely unresponsive. So clearly, Lisa wasn't fit to get on a plane that day, so her boyfriend took her home to where she slept. When Lisa woke up, she couldn't remember who her boyfriend was or even what year it was. She saw physicians. She had to be reintroduced to people that she'd known for years. She moved homes and impacted the lives of many people that were just trying to help her. And for two months, Lisa had, quote, unquote, amnesia. But when her boyfriend happened to read one of her journals, he was shocked. From Lisa's writing, he determined that Lisa's amnesia might have been an elaborate ruse for Lisa to break up with him without any consequences, which is fucking crazy. Right. And that sounds really sketchy. But with a boyfriend neglected to say and share about this trip that they were going on. So on that drive to the airport, during that drive, when Lisa first became catatonic and said she couldn't remember anything, he was actually pressuring her to take a massive bag of weed with her on an airplane, which it was illegal at the time. Obviously, Lisa didn't want to go to prison. All right. I think we're being a little dramatic, but This situation caused her extreme stress. So she said it was so extreme that she had a seizure 
like one she had when she was younger. And there was brief memory loss that followed it. However, Lisa does admit that she lied about the length of the memory loss. And she admitted further, she needed a pain-free way to end things with the guy. And this is how she chose to do it. And Lisa would later lament to her friends that it wasn't her best decision. It's an extreme thing to do. It's very gone girl to to come up with a ruse and burn your life to the ground for two months. Oh, yeah. Move and relationships when you're lying, pretending you don't know who you are or what year it is. Like, that is some of the most extreme lies I've ever heard, probably. So elaborate. So yeah. needless to say, regardless of all this, Lisa and this boyfriend, they were done. And about a year later in 1987, Lisa married her second husband, Don King. And he was kind of, you know, the complete package. He was good looking, he was athletic, and a world famous surf photographer. Lisa was his apprentice, and while he taught her the nuances of surf photography, they ended up falling in love. Together, the couple had a lot of professional success. They published a book of their best pictures, and Lisa's photography ended up gaining a pretty big following. And depending on where you're from, maybe you can't imagine that surf photography would be super lucrative, but Allison explained that the Hawaii surf culture, especially in Kailua, is very intense. Oh, it's huge. It's huge. Every kid surfs. There are huge surf contests. The waves are ginormous in the winter, so you have a huge infusion of that sport that comes to the island. And we moved away when our kids were going into high school. And I'm kind of glad because you can really get lost in just being a surfer. Kailua has a world-renowned kite surf. So the water is a huge part of the community. So that she was a top-notch surf photographer was super cool. You know, Quicksilver and, you know, it was a big deal. It was a big deal. So life seemed perfect for Lisa. She and Don had a son who we'll call Ben. And Lisa loved Ben dearly. She started investing in real estate and she began writing screenplays for Hollywood. She wanted to be a screenwriter now. And it seemed like she could do anything she wanted to. She was a, you know, Jane of all trades type person. But when Lisa wanted to invest in a large ranch in Oregon, Don wasn't sure it was a good financial decision. And as their money goals diverged, Lisa and Don's relationship started to deteriorate. But Lisa wasn't heartbroken for long. She had started spending time with a new man who already happened to own property in Oregon, and that man was Chris Northen. And at this point, you might have noticed a little bit of a pattern with Lisa's love interests. They're handsome, they're athletic, and have fascinating careers, and Chris was no different. He had blonde hair, blue eyes, and in Lisa's own words, a body like Adonis. And as if he couldn't get any better, he was also a pilot. Though he worked for Hawaiian Airlines and rented a home in Oahu, Chris also owned a house in his hometown of Bend, Oregon. But making an eight-hour commute from Hawaii to Oregon is a little bit different for a pilot because airline benefits allow you to fly for free. In 1996, Lisa and Chris were married, and in 1998, they had a son who we're going to call Jake. They lived primarily in Hawaii, but spent a lot of time in Oregon. And that's how Lisa became a regular at her first three Allison's local YMCA in Hawaii, which brings us to one day after all the ladies were done working out and Allison noticed a bunch of commotion in the locker room. The woman from the postpartum swim class had seen a bruise on Lisa's body. And that's when Lisa explained to them that her husband, Chris, was abusing her. The one time in the locker room, she had just an inconsequential bruise, like she bumped into the wall and she was showing everyone and it was high drama that Chris had done it. I didn't know Chris directly, but I knew him because he was a pilot. I had a couple of friends who flew with him 
just a chill, nice, easygoing guy, good dad. I just knew that he was just a straight, straight up good guy. It was so hard for Allison to believe that Chris had hurt Lisa since he seemed so nice. And this will be something you notice through the course of this story. We'll say it here and we'll say it loud. There is a sharp divide in terms of who believes Lisa, a sharp divide in the support of Chris and who he was. It's another theme we'll explore and comment on today as we continue unraveling the story. Either way, in the locker room that day, when Lisa was showing her friends these bruises and making these claims, her friends believed her. Certainly, no one wanted Lisa to feel unsafe. The women in the locker room offered to help, but Lisa said she was too terrified to leave Chris. She said, if I leave Chris, he says he'll track me down and kill me. And everybody got, you know, wide-eyed and horrified and said, you know, store your stuff with me and, and you can come stay with me. You have to get away from him. Okay, these are two wildly different pictures of Chris. Either he's a wife-beating asshole or a caring dad and husband. But you can't be both. Who was Chris Northen really? When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program, and it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Stodd, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 
10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. Christopher James Northen was born on September 12, 1956, to his parents Janine and Dick Northen. He was raised on a ranch in Bend, Oregon, with his two younger sisters. Chris's mom took care of the farm and the family, and his dad was a teacher. And throughout Chris's entire life, he loved the outdoors. The Northen family regularly skied and hiked and climbed mountains. They were very outdoorsy people. And he rode bulls, and he rode horses, was a Boy Scout, played football, and ran track. And as a kid, Chris's parents said that he was hardworking, sweet, and smart. He taught himself to play piano and read voraciously. But by high school, he was also known as a little bit of a prankster. And some of his pranks were pretty innocent, like when he went streaking at a football game, like pretty classic prank. And others were a little bit more serious, like when he wedged the door to his teacher's staff meeting shut and pulled the fire alarm. When his father reprimanded him, Chris admitted that he wanted to see the teachers climb out of the windows in a panic, which is kind of alarming. So is that a prank? Because it feels a little mean. But having been a high school kid myself once, it also sounds like it's coming from a not yet developed brain that hasn't come to fully understand empathy and long-term consequences. But this is very nuanced, right? Either way, after graduating high school in 74, Chris wasn't sure what was next for him. He worked odd jobs for a few years until finally deciding that he was going to be a pilot, like his Air Force veteran dad. And between Chris's crazy pilot work schedule and tendency to spend all his free time surfing in Hawaii or hiking in Oregon, he was known for his bachelor lifestyle. He was very proud of his parents, who'd been married for 50 years, though, and he always said that he'd follow in their footsteps. Once he was married, he wouldn't get divorced. And instead of risking an unhappy marriage, he chose not to get married at all. That is, until he found the right gal. In the mid-90s, Lisa and her first son, Ben, lived across the street from Chris. Lisa and Chris ran into each other pretty frequently, and they ended up becoming friends, and eventually Chris rented Lisa's cottage that was located in her backyard. Chris and Lisa were interested in each other and almost lived together, but Lisa was still married to Don. They may have been separated, but it's not really clear at that moment. Regardless, Chris and Lisa's relationship blossomed. And according to the East Oregonian, Lisa said that she felt like she really had it all with Chris. They were both fitness enthusiasts who loved Hawaii and Oregon. And Lisa really appreciated Chris's flight benefits, which I can't blame her because that's awesome. She could fly all over the Hawaiian islands for her surfing photography without any of the travel costs. It's a pretty good hookup. Sweet deal. Sweet deal. And at first, their friends and family supported them and thought that they were a really stellar match. Chris's friends had expected Chris to remain a bachelor forever, so this was really exciting to see Chris in a serious relationship. But as time passed, Lisa needed a stronger commitment from Chris. She was in her late 30s and wanted to have Chris's children. Time was of the essence, and she wanted a proposal. She was sitting there tapping her foot, you know? But while Lisa knew exactly what she wanted, Chris wasn't so sure. He was nervous about being a husband, and he was nervous about being a stepfather to Lisa's son, Ben, and a biological father to his own potential children. 
Honestly, his feelings are understandable, but Lisa also deserved to have the relationship she wanted to. Finally, she dropped the hammer. According to Lisa's writings, she told Chris he needed to seriously consider marrying her or he had to move out of the house in her backyard. And that sounds like a pretty harsh ultimatum, but if they did break up, it'd be super weird if Chris stayed. I mean, would you want your reason ex-boyfriend living less than 100 feet away from you? I wouldn't. I would never want to see them ever again. (laughs) I don't want my recent ex-boyfriend in the same country as me, preferably. No. Thank God none of mine have even been in the same city. So this is really stressing me out, even thinking of that possibility. But on the other hand, it's also not a good idea to get married just so your landlord doesn't evict you. That also is a bad idea. Terrible. But Chris's friends advised him to move out if he wasn't ready to marry Lisa. And as one friend said, you don't get married over a rental. But it wasn't so simple since Chris did have feelings for Lisa. And he liked that she understood the insane pilot schedule. Lisa knew he'd be gone while traveling for days at a time so she could help take care of the house while he was away. But there was one more kind of teeny tiny problem that stopped Lisa and Chris from getting married. Lisa still hadn't divorced her second husband, Don. She is dropping the hammer on him to get it together when she hasn't even divorced Don yet. Come on, Lisa. So Lisa was married while wanting all of this from Chris. But ultimately... Whatever she did, however she wore him down, it worked. Chris decided Lisa was the woman for him. And when Chris told Lisa he wanted to marry her, the two created a simple prenuptial agreement. The basic gist was, what's yours is yours and what's mine is mine. Except Lisa wanted full custody of any children they might have should they get divorced. But Chris, he wasn't worried. If his parents had made it 50 years, then so would he. So in March of 1996... Lisa and Chris had a beach wedding. The ceremony was small, and it was kind of rushed. When Chris called his minister friend to ask him to officiate the wedding that same night, his friend agreed, but said, you know, you got to push it back a little bit, a couple hours, because I have to take my kids to soccer practice first. It was all very impromptu. And on the day that they actually got married, Lisa had been legally divorced for less than 26 days. Okay, so now let's jump to 1999. Lisa and Chris had been married for about three years. They had their healthy newborn son, Jake, and they owned homes in Hawaii and Oregon. Their careers were thriving, and onlookers, Lisa and Chris were really living the dream. But of course, things were not as they appeared under the surface. According to claims Lisa would later make, Chris's enchanting personality was a well-crafted facade. Lisa also alleged that Chris was actually a high-functioning alcoholic and regular drug user who abused Lisa and threatened her sons, Ben and Jake, two to three times a week. And like her first-degree Allison explained, Lisa had told her postpartum swim class about Chris's abusive behavior, but they weren't the first people that Lisa had actually shared this information with. That's right. So apparently, Lisa's parents, Lisa's therapist, women in her group therapy, her babysitter, her ex-husband, Don... Uh, She would talk to Chris's parents and even the local police in Oregon and Hawaii. Lisa had apparently told anyone who would listen and confided in, in many people. But the question was, and the question is, was it true? Or was this a narrative that she was carefully crafting? And if she was manipulating those around her, to what end? Or was everything she's saying true? Either way, Lisa and Chris remained married. And let's go all the way to the other end of the spectrum of possibilities. What if everything Lisa said is true? Well, then, of course, people would ask, 
Why would Lisa stay? Well, we talk about this all the time on this podcast. It's complicated. It's dangerous. It's hard for women who are in relationships with abusers to leave. In Lisa's case, if Chris had really threatened to kill her and the kids, well, then that explains why she wouldn't have left hastily. And even if Lisa believed that Chris wouldn't act on his threats, she couldn't take the kids and go because that was considered kidnapping in the state of Oregon. And if she divorced Chris, she feared that he would win partial custody or visitation rights, thus putting her sons, Ben and Jake, in danger when she wasn't there to protect him. These are all the thought processes she could have been having. So for better or worse, truthful or not, life continued onward. Until one day, our first degree Allison heard some shocking news. During the Northen family's Oregon camping trip, someone had been murdered. Behind closed doors, you have no idea how a marriage is. You know what I mean? I wasn't close enough to know, and you never know. No, you never do know. And in this case, when the facts came to light, there again would be a sharp divide in support in who to believe and beyond. And I'm sure you have questions. What happened and why? Who is the victim and who is the villain? You know the drill. To answer all of these questions, we've got to go back. We're taking you to Bend, Oregon. And remember, Bend, Oregon was Chris and Lisa's home away from home. They'd go to there to see Chris's parents, go hiking, and briefly escape their Hawaii-based jobs. Located in central Oregon, it's a city of about 100,000 people. And like most places in the Pacific Northwest, Bend is a nature lover's dream. They have beautiful scenery, and it's a hot spot for boating, fishing, and mountain biking. In October of the year 2000, Chris and Lisa drove six hours from Bend to go camping with their three-year-old son, Jake, up the Lost Dine River in Wallowa-Whitman National Forest. And the closest city to their campsite was Enterprise, Oregon, which is a super small town with less than 2,000 people. And with snow-capped mountains, green forests, and a clear river water, the Lost Dine River is a picturesque place to camp and unwind. And after four years of marriage, it was well known among those who knew them that Chris and Lisa were very unhappy. They'd gone to couples therapy, but it didn't seem to help. This camping trip, in some ways, it was an effort to restore peace in their relationship. Camping, after all, was one of Chris's favorite activities, and Lisa hoped to use it as an opportunity to ask him to go to rehab for his drug and alcohol abuse. According to Lisa, her thought process was, maybe if Chris could get professional help for his addiction, he would stop being violent. And Chris apparently was excited for the trip because it seemed like an opportunity to spend quality time with his wife and son while enjoying the great outdoors. So on Friday, October 6, 2000, Chris and Lisa headed to their weekend getaway. And that Monday, Oregon State Police received a call from Lisa's brother. He explained that a violent altercation had occurred between Chris and Lisa Northen at the Lostine River campgrounds. Unsure of what they would find, local authorities went to the Northen's campsite. And there they discovered Chris's car. It was filled with camping equipment and normal camp gear that were scattered around the area and numerous empty liquor bottles. And they also found the body of a tall, blonde man lying in a fully zipped blue sleeping bag. Using his wallet, police quickly identified the man as 44-year-old Chris Northen. Chris had been shot in the head. I was running a marathon prep group. We were preparing for a marathon, and someone in the, this early morning running group said, you know, Lisa from Lanikai killed her husband in Bend. And they started to talk more about it. Like, And this was a separate group from the Y. I'm like, oh, my God. 
That's Lisa from the locker room. According to Lisa, she was the one who asked her brother to call the police. And from the very beginning, Lisa never denied shooting her husband. The question was, and always has been, why? And local investigators intended to find out. Police caught up with Lisa at the hospital, where she was tending to numerous injuries. According to Seattle Weekly, she had one black eye, 17 bruises, seven abrasions, a cut, and choke marks on her neck. The hospital was located in Walla Walla, Washington, Lisa's hometown, which was about two hours from the Lostine River campsite. So why was Lisa so far away from the crime scene? Why hadn't Lisa called for someone to come help Chris? And why was Lisa herself injured? So many questions remained unanswered. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. On the night of October 8th, 2000, 38-year-old Lisa Northen shot her 44-year-old husband, Chris Northen, while on a camping trip with their three-year-old son, Jake. According to Lisa, who is the only adult present, this is what happened. Throughout the camping trip, Chris had been drinking very heavily and using drugs. Lisa confronted him, saying it was inappropriate for a pilot to behave that way. She told him he needed to straighten up, stop abusing her, and go to rehab. And at all of this, Chris became very enraged. He threatened to kill Lisa and her sons, chop their bodies into tiny pieces, and ensure that their bodies would never be found. He tackled Lisa, pushing her into the Lostine River, and tried to drown her. The only thing that stopped the attack was their distressed son, Jake, who yelled, don't kill mommy. And as Lisa tells it, at some point, Chris threatened Lisa and Jake with a knife. So in response, Lisa left the campsite with Jake for a brief period. But upon realizing she'd forgotten important medication at the campsite, she had to return. On that Sunday evening, Chris momentarily calmed down. Then Lisa helped him into his sleeping bag and he went to sleep. Jake was also asleep. According to Lisa, she feared that Chris would kill her and Jake in the night. So she considered leaving right there and then, but was worried that if she packed up and picked up Jake, that he would start crying, and thus Chris would wake up. So, you know, if Chris wakes up, she's certain he's going to try to stop them. So instead, Lisa snuck to her car, and she grabbed her thirty-eight caliber revolver, and she loaded it. Now near the car, Lisa accidentally discharged one bullet. Now worried that Chris had heard, she rushed back to the campsite. And she panicked and she yelled, I'm leaving. She heard Chris make a sound and then she fired a warning shot towards him before grabbing Jake, loading him in the car and leaving. 
At this moment, Lisa claimed that she had no idea that either of these bullets had struck Chris, nor that he was sitting there dying, nor that he was maybe dead. She had no idea. She then drove two hours to her brother's house in Walla Walla and asked him to call the police. Then she went to her family friend's house where her first son, Ben, was staying. And when both of her sons were safely with family, Lisa then went to the hospital. Then after her injuries were treated, the police arrested her. She would remain in jail without bail until her trial. And according to Lisa, she didn't consider stopping to call the police before arriving at her brother's house because she was so focused on getting her sons to a safe location. And remember, this is the year 2000, so she didn't have a cell phone either. She'd have to stop at a town gas station or something like that that had a phone and ask to use the landline. And there really weren't any sizable towns between Walla Walla and the campsite that would have places that would be open that late with a phone. And it's worth mentioning that Lisa told this version of events during a polygraph test, which determined that Lisa was truthful. But as you know, and we talk about this all the time on this podcast, the reliability of these polygraph tests don't really mean much given the error rates. And also, if you're a psychopath, you can pass them. There's so many things that make them unreliable. But the administrator of the test, who'd been a police chief of Pendleton for 14 years, felt that Lisa was telling the truth. And although this wasn't a high-profile case, it gained traction locally. The community was completely divided as to whether or not Lisa was justified in killing her husband, Chris. Whether or not Chris was actually abusive, whether or not Lisa was a manipulator who had planned this and had crafted this abuse narrative in advance. When Lisa had told people about Chris's abuse, there were many who couldn't fathom that Chris, their friend Chris, would do something like that. To them, Chris was a pillar of the community. He was warm. He was funny. He was successful. He was a pilot. They drank beers and had fun with this guy. And some people recalled that Lisa had a history of exaggeration. Plus, Lisa was also a professional screenwriter. Maybe Lisa, a known storyteller, was making false accusations to escape the consequences of killing her husband. A lot of people recalled her two months of pretending she had amnesia to get out of her relationship. Is this just one step from there? So there's a lot of questions on both sides. Jack and I are not taking a position. This is all for you to decide. Even our first degree, Allison, who was friends with people close to Chris, was certain that Lisa had been fabricating the abuse all along. She's really brilliant that she was able to be so convincing that everybody believed her at the time. She came across as such a ding dong, and I'm not saying I'm a rocket scientist, but she was that cunning. I felt sorry for her. And when, you know, the little of me that believed her, you know what I mean? She seemed like this simple young mom. I believe in my heart she killed him on purpose. <laughs> and it wasn't because she was um, being abused because he was a good man. Allison was not alone in her beliefs that Lisa was lying about her abuse. Many, many people to this day still believe that Chris never harmed Lisa. And there's a reason for that, which we'll explain shortly. But court documents detailing the reports of witnesses and medical professionals show that without a doubt that Lisa was abused. And she had gone to the police on several different occasions. In fact, one police report noted that Lisa and Chris had a history of domestic violence. Like in 1997, Lisa called police during one of Chris's violent episodes in which Chris tore a phone out of a wall. And another time, when Lisa called the police in Bend, but officers recognized Chris from high school. And according to Oregon Live, the police officers told the couple, you guys just need to get some counseling. And also, in 1999, 
When Lisa went to the ER with multiple cuts and large bruises on her leg, the doctor was concerned that Lisa was a victim of domestic violence, which Lisa reluctantly confirmed. The doctor called the police, and Chris was arrested, but he was released shortly after. And after that, Lisa took out a restraining order against Chris, but he ignored it and continued threatening Lisa, because restraining orders are a piece of paper after all. Police did nothing when they realized Chris had violated the restraining order. And eventually, Lisa claimed that she became distrustful of law enforcement and stopped making reports. So in preparation for her trial, Lisa hired a well-known defense lawyer named Pat Birmingham. Pat's defense team dug up what they claimed to be even more evidence that Chris abused Lisa. And as confirmed by Chris's colleagues, roommates, and friends, Chris had a history of abusing at least two of his past girlfriends. Plus, many people had seen Lisa's bruises and watched Chris verbally berate her at times. When Lisa's trial began on Monday, July 16, 2001, the judge formally accepted that Lisa was a victim of domestic violence. And according to court documents, the guardian at Lightham, who was assigned to protect the interests of nine-year-old Ben and three-year-old Jake, they said that continuing to deny that Chris Northen was a batterer causes emotional and psychological trauma to the children. But even as a victim of domestic violence, Lisa faced serious criminal charges. Chris had been fast asleep when she shot him, and she fled the scene without calling for help at all. Did she act in self-defense, fearing Chris so greatly that she couldn't escape him without shooting him, or did Lisa have a different motive for killing Chris? Well, the prosecution obviously had their own theory about why Lisa may have wanted to do this. The state accused Lisa of planning to kill Chris for his $300,000 life insurance policy, a $1 million property, and the airline employee widow benefits, which would have allowed her to continue to fly for free. After all, they were camping in a remote area. What better place to kill your abusive husband? And there may have been evidence that Lisa purposely drugged Chris on the night that she killed him. Right, because Chris's autopsy showed that he had two to three doses of a strong sedative in his system when he died. So had Lisa poisoned Chris in an attempt to make him pliable so he was easier to kill? And if he was drinking and doing drugs, like Lisa said, why was there so little to no alcohol in his blood? Like, why were there empty liquor bottles everywhere? So, well, although his blood was alcohol-free, Chris's urine showed a sizable amount of alcohol. So it was probably just had been a while or been a few hours since his last drink, apparently, according to this documentation. As far as drugs go, the court heard numerous testimonies from people who'd seen Chris do drugs and also drink. Plus, there was an especially damning audio clip of Chris and some other Hawaiian airline pilots chatting about how to pass a drug test without being truly clean. So ultimately, the judge did determine that Chris Northen more than likely did abuse drugs and alcohol. And initially, Lisa's defense team was confident that they would prove her innocent. But on the second day of the trial, a new piece of evidence was submitted that changed everything. Lisa's computer. And keep in mind, the trial is to determine if Lisa acted out of fear and self-defense or planned the murder with ulterior motives. And Lisa's computer had multiple emails to her father, Wayland, where she detailed how she'd kill Chris. And I don't know about you, but it sounds a lot like premeditation. But there were questions. Where had this computer been before all this? Why was it just now coming to light? And as it turns out, Lisa had actually sent the computer to a friend of hers for safekeeping while she was in jail awaiting trial. And that friend happened to be in the postpartum swim class at the same YMCA as her first degree, Allison. The plot thickens. It was mid-trial. 
And this poor young mom who'd moved back to Connecticut got a lawyer, and the lawyer advised her to send it to counsel, to the prosecutors in Oregon. The trial stopped, and a forensic guy went 24 hours unloading all of this incriminating information. And I think shortly after that, she pled guilty to manslaughter. She was in communication with her dad about how to kill him so that she would have flight benefits and wouldn't have to share custody. The dad was talking about guns and which guns to use and methods to kill her husband because I think she probably had convinced her father that she was a battered wife. So Lisa's father, Wayland, believed that she was a battered wife. He said he witnessed Chris emotionally abuse her and also had seen her injuries. Wayland was so worried about Chris's violent behavior that he actually gave Lisa a handgun. And it was the same handgun that Lisa would use to kill Chris. So to this day, Lisa doesn't deny fantasizing about killing Chris in these emails, but that's what she calls them. She calls them fantasizing. They're fantasies. Even some of the fictional stories Lisa wrote as a screenwriter are centered on a battered wife murdering her abusive husband. Lisa argued that all domestic violence victims think about escaping their abusers in a variety of ways. And she pointed out that over 400 other emails that she exchanged with her father had detailed Chris's abuse. Regardless, her defense lawyer, Pat Birmingham, was pissed. Like, this is just an aside. Lawyers asked their clients to be 100% transparent with them. And she lied about the existence of this computer and what would be found on it. This computer came in the middle of trial. So this, this lawyer, Pat Birmingham, was unprepared for this turn of events. He recommended Lisa take a plea deal. Like, this is so damning, you're screwed, and threatened to drop her as a client if she refused to do so. Pat also said that they would not be returning any of the money that she'd paid him. And this is a huge deal because Lisa had spent over $200,000 hiring Pat. She had to sell her home in Hawaii, and she had no more money for another lawyer. If the jury convicted Lisa of murder, she could have faced anywhere from 25 years to life in prison. So on July 19th, 2001, Lisa pled guilty to first-degree manslaughter and was sentenced to 12 years in prison. Lisa never had the opportunity to take the stand. And according to Seattle Weekly, Lisa spent the next nine years filing multiple claims to the Oregon State Bar that her defense attorney, Pat Birmingham, gave her poor legal counsel. What I find so interesting about this is that Pat Birmingham, this hotshot attorney, had they been given the computer and had a chance to read it, they probably could have spun it to help you. Oh, yeah. I mean, if she had 400 emails detailing her abuse, of course they could. Like, that's the thing. It's like, you can't, you have to be transparent because lawyers, they find angles to make it work for you. And like, right. I don't think Pat did the wrong thing. Like, you, if yeah. you don't have honesty between your client and your lawyer, what do you have? And it, look, Lisa's a liar. I'm not saying she's lying about the abuse, but she lies about a lot. So you lied to your lawyer and it screwed you. Yeah. Well, either way, like many others who were paying attention to this trial, and remember, this trial is about her intent of killing her husband. Is it self-defense, out of fear, or is it malicious and greed? So, you know, half the people, like our first-degree Allison, believe that Lisa killed Chris maliciously. You know what? Honestly, I believed it without knowing anything more. I believed it when it happened. And when she read Ann Rule's 2003 bestselling book, Heartful of Lies, which is about Lisa's case, it seemed like everything was crystal clear. Pre-2012 is when I read A Heartful of Lies that really kind of filled me in. I had read a lot of Ann Rule, and I don't know. You know, maybe someone in Hawaii mentioned that uh, she'd written a book. I don't really remember. It wasn't from necessarily following the case. It was more because I read a lot of true crime. I have no question in my mind after reading that book that she did it. 
and she did, you know, she just wanted, she didn't want to share custody. She didn't want, she wanted the flight benefits and the life insurance. She's a narcissist. Ann Rule's 400-page book depicts Lisa really poorly. Like, it's very, very anti-Lisa. Within the first few pages, Rule insinuates that Lisa is a manipulative sociopath. And throughout the book, Rule calls Lisa's credibility into question, claiming that Lisa lied about Chris's ongoing spousal abuse. The book ends with Rule's description of how she believes that Lisa murdered Chris in cold blood for insurance money, property value, and Chris's flight benefits. You probably do know, but if you don't, Anne Rule was probably the most famous true crime writer ever in American history. Rule earned a degree in creative writing and then became the youngest policewoman ever to be hired by the Seattle PD. She famously worked side by side with Ted Bundy at the suicide hotline. That's sort of the anecdote people know about her. But before Rule passed away in 2015, she had published 35 wildly successful novels about real life true crime cases. And these aren't based on true story books. These are marketed as accurate accounts of people's lives. The tagline for Heartful of Lies is a true story of desire and death. So when you picked up this book at the airport, you were going to believe everything it said about Lisa. But some people argue court documents, witnesses, and other primary sources painted a very different picture of Lisa. Rule took her writing seriously, completing over 46 hours of college courses in forensic pathology, which is more than what is required for most master's degrees. She also went to over 100 trials for her research. But Rule didn't go to Lisa's trial. By chance, she had a hip surgery that kept her out of the courtroom. And for whatever reason, she primarily interviewed Chris's friends and family and not hers. The Seattle Weekly reported that Lisa's aunt, mother, and brother said that Rule made no attempt to contact them for interviews. And Rule never contacted Lisa for an interview either. Lisa's father, Waylon, said that he made time for an interview with Rule, but she never got back to him. Rule's depiction of Lisa's case is engaging to read, but there's no question about it. Rule thought Chris never laid a hand on Lisa. And with Rule's book, Lisa's very low-profile case suddenly became an extremely high-profile one. And this is where things get really interesting if they haven't already. So as you all know, everyone in America reads Anne Rule's books. And as a result, everyone thought Lisa was a cunning, lying husband killer. But was she? Anne Rule thought so. But Anne Rule didn't know Lisa. But maybe she was anyway. Perception plays a role in all of these real-life cases, the ones that we all immerse ourselves in. And Jack and I, in the Facebook group, we see fights about cases in our group every day about the perceived guilt or innocence of any defendant in any controversial case. And everyone has hills they're willing to die on when it comes to their belief about somebody's guilt or innocence. But how are any of us so sure? How are any of us willing to die on that hill given what we've learned today? We should all be open. A lot of this is about perception and interpretation. But regardless of our opinions on Lisa's guilt or possible motives, in 2007 and 2011, Lisa sued Rule for over 100 instances of false statements that were presented as fact and heartful of lies. But all the cases were dismissed. Legally, this doesn't mean the court believed Dan Rule was telling the truth and Lisa wasn't or vice versa. It's just that freedom of speech protected Rule's interpretation of past events. Around 2011, 43-year-old journalist Rick Swart read Anne Rule's Heartful of Lies, as well as a lot of America, and he was astonished to read Rule's passage expressing her regret that she couldn't interview Lisa. 
Rick ended up writing, you know, Lisa was locked up in a prison. It wasn't as if she was going anywhere. And intrigued, he began researching Lisa's case for his own story. Rick sent Lisa a letter requesting an interview, and months later, after extensive research and interviews, Rick wrote an article for Seattle Weekly entitled Anne Rule's Sloppy Storytelling. It was a scathing 5,000-word essay outlining numerous flaws in Rule's salacious depiction of Lisa as a villainous wife. He wrote, I've arrived at the conclusion that the title of Rule's book, Heartful of Lies, better depicts the author than the subject. So when this article was published, Anne Rule and her fans were livid. And at the time, Anne Rule had a website where she posted updates uh, to her followers, kind of like a forum. And she expressed that Rick's article was, quote, deliberately mean and full of inaccuracies. She also wrote, quote, there is a backstory concerning the article's author that I cannot reveal at the moment. It will knock your socks off when my lawyer allows me to tell you about it. So Seattle Weekly, who is hosting this article and published it, is concerned, right? So they contact Rick and they say, is there something that you're not telling us, something that we should know? I'm sure the email read something like, hey, Rick, so what do you think Ann Rule is going to say? Like, what is this post she made on her forum? And Rick responded, and this is what he said verbatim, quote, what she'll probably say is I'm in love with Lisa Northen, which is true, in clothed parentheses. So I know, I know, you really can't make this stuff up. It's crazy, but Lisa, doggone it, she'd done it again. Rick, the journalist, was madly in love with Lisa. In fact, it turns out, this is weird, Rick and Lisa had known each other way back in the 80s when Rick was 22 and Lisa was 17. Like, this is stranger than fiction. It's insane. So back in the day, they had this immediate chemistry and Rick asked Lisa on a date and she agreed, but she ended up standing him up and they lost contact. And that was that. Lisa told Oregon Live that Rick told me he thought about me nearly every day for 30 years after that. She was like the one that got away for Rick. So when 54-year-old Rick was reading Ann Rule's Heartful of Lies, he recognized his old crush, Lisa. And when Rick started researching his article, his and Lisa's relationship was strictly professional. You know, they knew each other from back in the day, but that's not a bad thing in the eyes of journalism. But after hours and hours of interviews, Rick and Lisa fell in love. And Rick actually moved into an apartment between Lisa's prison and his job so he could visit Lisa regularly. Right. And the newspaper Rick sold his article to and Rule's sloppy storytelling, they were pissed. Rick had been a journalist for over 25 years. He knew that this was a direct conflict of interest that should have been divulged in the article. This wasn't Rick the journalist defending a battered woman who is misrepresented in a best-selling book. This was Rick a man in love defending his future wife. So a few months after the article was published, Rick and Lisa got married in the prison's visitation room. You can see how bias might be a problem for a journalist who's presenting himself as impartial. But Rick stands by his work, saying the story is true. It's my personal life, and I'd like to think I'm able to separate that from my craft. Lisa revealed that Rick knew no newspaper would run the article if he'd revealed his relationship with her. But Rick was emphatic that the utter injustice that was done to Lisa needed to be printed. Rule sued Rick for defamation but lost, and she ultimately somehow had to pay Rick $10,000. Such a mess. Such a mess. But like people who argue that Lisa's manipulative, look at this. Look at things like this. Yeah. Oh, this journalist who's writing maybe a story, like d doing their own research to maybe counter a book that Ann Rule has written. Of course, you want to charm them. So they write you write about you positively to restore your reputation. Like it's right. things like this that really make Lisa 
people people don't respond well to things like this. It doesn't seem sincere because right. it's too weird. So today, Lisa is currently out of prison. She was released at age 50 on October 9th, 2012. And it was 12 years to the day after she killed Chris Northen. And Lisa does not regret killing her abusive husband. She told the star advertiser, Chris had beaten the crap out of me. I defended my child and myself. And because of my actions, my children got to grow up. And since Lisa killed Chris, she won't receive any of Chris's life insurance money or his property or his airline benefits. And this is because there are slayer laws in Oregon that prevent a person from killing their spouse and getting any financial gain. Today, Lisa works with organizations that support domestic violence victims, but her case will always be a polarizing one. Her oldest son, Ben, who was nine when his stepfather died, has publicly stated that Anne book is slanderous, confirming once more that Chris did, in fact, abuse Lisa. And when asked if Rick is worried about being married to a woman who had admittedly killed her last husband, he told Oregon Live, I don't beat women. If I do, she has my permission to shoot me. But even Pat Birmingham, Lisa's original defense attorney, told Seattle Weekly that Lisa was selective with the truth. Pat said she'll take the third paragraph on page three of a 10-page report and cite that as authority. And of course, there are millions of people who read Anne Rule's book and believe it wholeheartedly. And why wouldn't they? Rule had a good reputation for reporting the facts. Even our first read, Allison, who enjoyed Rule's novel, is hesitant to believe that Lisa was a battered woman. She saw it unfolding, and it didn't sit right. If you believe her, you're just buying her bill of goods. I just think she's a snake, and I think she's a genius. I'm sure you have come across people in your life that you are astounded by how clever they are, and I think that she was one of those. And then sinister. So many people assume that the woman is, in fact, a victim when, in fact, she was not. She had an agenda. That is my heartfelt belief and impression. The truth is a funny thing. A story told in law schools across the country goes like this. A law school professor stands at the front of the class and informs the students, who are future lawyers, of the importance of upholding the truth exactly as it is, so that the justice system works properly. The law school professor holds up a black book for the students to examine and asks them for one truth. What color is the book? The law school students, thinking this is a joke, they say, obviously, it's black. But the professor reprimands them and he explains, this is a red book. Arguments ensue. And when the students and professor can find no solution as to whether the book is black or red, the professor shows them the back of the book, which is red. To the professor, the truth, it is a red book. To the students, it's a black book. And we're often told that there are two sides to every story. But really, there's 200. Lisa's truth was different from Chris's. And rules different from Rick Swartz. You'll have to decide your own truth. If you or someone you know is a victim of domestic violence, the National Domestic Violence Hotline is 1-800-799-SAFE or text START to 88788. For live chat and other resources, their website is thehotline.org. Well, huge thank you to Allison for being our first degree for this episode. If you're listening and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram, join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time. Join our Patreon for extra bonus content and come back tomorrow because we're going to have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers.
and keep your friends close, but not that close. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by the wondrously talented Andrea Marshbank. Sources for this episode are Court Documents, The Bulletin, East Oregonian, Seattle Weekly, Walla Walla County Chieftain, Star Advertiser, Oregon Live, CBS News, Oregon Justice Resource Center. Visit wallawalla.org, visit ben.com, Ancestry, U.S. Department of Agriculture, PRN, Heartful of Lies, the National Domestic Violence Hotline, and Civil Beat. And as always, our first degree guest is always our largest source. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.